Well, good morning. Since it's Mother's Day today, I thought I would share a little story and something I've written. A couple of years ago, we were gathered together for a Mother's Day event, and most of our children and their spouses and grandchildren were there, and I decided I would do a toast before the dinner, and uh, that led to actually doing some writing, and I ended up doing the draft of a poem, which later became a sonnet about Mother's Day. I've called it, uh, We Sing of Mothers. So whether uh, you are a mother yourself, or whether your situation is, is very different, or like myself, uh, I think of my mother in terms of her blessed memory, uh, I trust this will be of an encouragement to you as we celebrate uh, the amazing mystery and wonder of motherhood. We sing of mothers. I see how some could question creation if they ne'er set foot in a birthing room. The cries and curses and consternations, a miracle parts the watery womb. We sing of mothers who heal with a kiss. They bear up, bear down, unbearably long. And some carried little ones that now we miss, gave of their bodies, the weaker so strong. May all our moms stay steady, we pray, and children flourish in our company. The names of the women they love to say, Mommy and Maymay, Nana and Nani. Our vines entwine in this vineyard of kin. The joy of fine wine, let the feast begin. This morning we want to look uh, at the um, Easter season, and particularly the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Luke 24. In the course of church history, we've always had a time where we celebrate Easter, the actual Easter day, but also every Sunday is a little Easter. It's the first day of the week. We remember that Jesus rose from the dead. The reason why Christian worship moved from the Sabbath day of Saturday to the first day of the week had to do with celebrating the resurrection. So what happens in Luke chapter 24 is the first account of Jesus appearing to his disciples. So we have several of these accounts in the Gospels of Jesus appearing. And these are absolutely amazing and important events for us to understand because they give us a glimpse of who Jesus really is, who he is now, what it means to live and walk with the resurrected Jesus. So Luke chapter 24, uh, and we'll begin uh, here with verse 13. So listen to this story. I'm going to read pretty much the whole story and, uh, and try to tune in to, to capture what's happening here. It says on that very day, two of them, two of Jesus' followers, were going to a village named Emmaus, and about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all the things that had happened. And while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. Again, you've got some mystery here, don't you? What does it mean that Jesus in his resurrected body came near them and they didn't recognize him? And he said to them, what is this conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. 
And then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus, the Naz of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet mighty indeed and worried before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some of the women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And then Jesus says to them, and this may sound a little harsh, but probably not as harsh as it sounds. He says, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. We'll stop there for a moment. In my current uh, stage of life or season of life, I have a, an unusual day at times, unusual from the standpoint of contrast. So I'm teaching a course, two courses at University of Rhode Island. And one of them starts at 8.30 or 8 o'clock in the morning, and the other starts at 3.30. And in between, I'm going to the hospital where I serve as a chaplain with South County Health. And I say this, is, this has captured me because I think about the fact that this Jesus who I love and serve is the one who I'm convinced gives us the keys to what it means to live well, as well as to die well, and to care well for others. And so in the morning, I'm dealing with college students, and we're, we're exploring questions about what makes life worth living. We're exploring questions of life and death. Matter of fact, this is a health, health studies major, and they actually have to write their own advanced directives. That's one of my assignments. And at the end of their course, they have to write an ethical vision for their life and work. So I'm, I'm desperately trying to help them become more reflective, to think about what it is that is their worldview and makes them tick. And very often, the students want to write papers about justice and compassion and health care and war and poverty, the death, the death penalty. And sometimes it's, it's hard to help them see or to ask the question even, where did your compassion come from? Where did your honoring of the human being come from? Where did it come into your mind that every person should be treated the same? And then I go to the hospital. And for example, last Thursday, I go to the hospital and I'm spending several hours, part of which is literally holding the hands of men and women who know that their life is coming to an end. They may be actively dying. They may have made a transition to that place. And some of them I've gotten to know. 
And so we are talking about things of life and of death. And so here I am at both ends of the, the spectrum. The young, those who uh, in some ways are becoming more and more tuned in because of the pandemic, because of things like suicide, because of the, this, the, the difficulties and struggles of life. They're becoming more tuned in to the fact that it's not always easy to make sense of life or to have a life worth living. But they still tend to not think much about their own mortality or what it means to, to actually live. And so then on the other end of the spectrum, we have those who sometimes are looking back with great grief and remorse about life and asking the question, has this been a life worth living and what do I do and what, how do I make sense of the dying process? So you put all that together and um, I am glad that I have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. I'm glad that he has made it clear the story that can make sense of my own story. I want to consider with you this passage, this amazing passage of Jesus interacting with his disciples uh, after his resurrection. And I want to uh, submit to you that there are three conditions of the heart that Jesus unveils and, and speaks so strongly to us about. The first one, the first one is this. Uh, by the way, who is, Jesus, uh, who is Jesus talking with? The iconography, the picture that we had up is, is basically um, showing probably a couple, a man and a woman. And, and they, they are going through the first condition of the heart. We'll call it the sad heart, uh, the sad heart of, of disappointment. And uh, where this comes through is not only that they, it says that they were sad. They became silent and they were sad. And then their first three words, these three words, we had hoped. We had hoped. What had they hoped? What was their disappointment? What were they wrestling with? What would make them sad? They even heard that Jesus' tomb was empty, and yet they were deeply sad and disappointed. I think there's on several levels, and, and again, I want you to begin thinking about areas where you are asking that question internally, we had hoped, I had hoped. Politically, they had hoped. They had undoubtedly, like many, looked and were continuing to look for that messianic figure that would come and overthrow the Roman oppression. There had been many messianic figures, even around the time of Jesus. Was Jesus really another Messiah that bites the dust? We had hoped that he would be the one, but their interpretation of what that would look like was still very much of empire and violence and overthrow and insurrection. They would hope that Israel could be restored, at least to peace, if not to prominence. They also had the personal disappointment. They must have followed him in some measure. They probably weren't part of the 12, but they followed him. They knew him. And, and here they're longing for this one who would bring the kingdom of God had died. And we don't know where he is. So, so there's that level of, you know, we had hoped. I want to suggest to you that there are so many things in our lives 
that are on this level of disappointment that don't just stay at disappointment, but actually become more deep-seated. They actually, actually become the, in an area of resentment, even trauma. Some of you have gone through traumas in your life. The best definition of trauma is the fact that uh, when you go through trauma, you have a shattered assumption. There's something that you have assumed, something that's an expectation, a logical expectation that has been shattered. Those who have lost a child have gone through the trauma of a shattered assumption that you die after, or you die before your children, not after. And many times we have traumas that things are just not the way they ought to be. If you've gone through any kind of abusive situation, part of the trauma of that is that that's not the way it ought to be. There should be trust, and this trust was broken, whatever that might be. So this idea of disappointment and, and cynicism and resentment can easily build up. I'm convinced from even reflecting on my own life how much resentment is a part of our lives. It's an undercurrent. It's almost in the atmosphere. And if we don't do something or reflect on it or have that healed or even brought into the open, very often that resentment becomes like a festering disease that actually infiltrates every aspect of our lives. My father was, um, for most of his life, not a believer uh, in Christ. He had a vague sense of the mother nature and, and a strong sense that uh, he couldn't do it alone. But he had a really tough childhood. He was an orphan. And he grew up with a proverbial chip on his shoulder. It was hard to deal with, and it was, he wasn't very self-aware, it seemed. And then one day, the first time he meets my wife, they go on a walk, and in the process of him telling stories, he looks at her and says, I felt like life gave me a dirty deal and I've been trying to get back ever since. <laughs> it blew my mind because he was aware of it. There was a deep-seated resentment that had permeated his life and he didn't even know how to deal with it. So resentments can kill us. It's so interesting that in my, in my work in healthcare, there's a new term. It's like an umbrella term that is being used uh, in, in the literature and in the discussions of serious illnesses and, and basically headline kinds of things that are going on in our culture. It's called the deaths of despair. It's actually a term that's being used to cover things like suicide and drug addiction and things that that are rooted in a loss of meaning and purpose in life. So these deaths of despair, that, makes, that, that shows, for example, in the fact that the second leading cause of death among millennials is suicide. And we all know about the drug epidemics, the opioid epidemics. So this whole arena of this deep-seated resentment can become something that can actually hamstring uh, our lives. Jesus began walking and having conversation with these two people who were, who were gripped in the disease of we had hoped. The second condition of the heart 
comes when Jesus uh, begins to speak to them about something that uh, they needed to hear. He says, oh foolish ones and slow of heart. So, so the second condition of the heart is a slow heart and I'm using that in terms of the slowness that we have to understand. That we have misconceptions, misunderstandings that actually keep us from experiencing a life worth living. And particularly, of course, Jesus was dealing with their perception and understanding of their own scriptures, of their own religious faith. And he was basically saying to them, if you're looking for a Messiah who's just political or a Messiah who's going to bypass suffering and servanthood and humiliation, then you've missed what the prophets have been getting at all along. And so this area of misunderstanding, he begins to correct. And again, it's about seven miles journey. He's walking with them. So what's that, two or three hours the most? And Jesus, it says, if we you, if you look at this, this scripture in Luke 24, 26 and 27, it says, um, it was don't you know that it was necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses, meaning the law of Moses, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He says the same thing a little bit later in Luke. Now those three areas, Moses, the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms, or the writings, that's all of the three sections of the Hebrew Bible. In other words, Jesus is saying, let me show you in every part of the scriptures that you think you know how all of it points to me. How would you like to be in that Bible study? How would you like to have your Zoom group and say, hey, today we have a special guest and uh, Jesus is going to come and actually he's going to explain how every part of the scriptures points to him. That would clear up some misunderstandings. I don't need to rehearse to you our general biblical ignorance. I sometimes talk about the fact that with uh, folks, uh, as I've been a pastor or a teacher or, or in the chaplaincy, very often I feel like God uses me to connect the dots for people. Even someone with dementia uh, can recite the Lord's Prayer with me. When I talk about Jesus on the cross and the thief who says, uh, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom, and Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise, people will, will quote that with me. They, they remember that in some background of their upbringing. But in the younger generations, we are dealing with absolute and total blank slates. There are no reference points. There don't, it doesn't seem sometimes like there's any dots to connect. And it's not just a matter of uh, some kind of argumentation against faith or against the scriptures. It's that they are not relevant and they are totally unknown. So, so that's what we're, we're, we're facing here. And so part of what, what I feel that, that God does is he meets us. He meets us always where we are. And so, but when it comes to being a follower of Jesus, whether you are 16 or 60, you have entered into a lifetime apprenticeship, part of which becomes letting Jesus 
open up the scriptures and give you the proper understanding and interpretation. That involves being in a church where the scriptures are being faithfully taught, where you're being resourced to dig into your own understanding of scripture, and that's where we want to be as a church here. But we can't bypass that. We've got to get into the scriptures and help them point us to who Jesus really is. There's a third condition of the heart that, uh, that Jesus points to. Actually, they themselves discover. <laughs> and we'll go back to, uh, to Luke 24. What happens? It says they drew near to the village to which they were going. And he acted as if he was going further, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us. It's toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. And when he was at the table with them, he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. Normally when you're invited into dinner, aren't you the one being served? Jesus goes into the dinner and he begins to serve. And he took the bread and he blessed it and he broke it and he gave it to them. And their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Again, some mystery here. And then he vanished. And they said to each other, did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem and they found the 11 and said, the Lord has risen indeed. And he's appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. Amazing. What's that saying? By the way, when I, when I say those four words, he took bread and broke it and blessed it and gave it to them. Does that sound familiar at all? If you've been in a communion service here or elsewhere, often that's simply, he's going back to those same four words that he used at the Last Supper when he took the bread and blessed it and broke it and gave it to them. So it was in that meal, that communion with one another and with Jesus in person that he was made known to them. That speaks to me about the importance of worship. Why do we have communion, the Eucharist, the Lord's table? It's one of those places that God especially meets us. Jesus meets us. So to bring all this together, I, I just want to say this. Luke, again, throughout the, his gospel, is trying to help people go from just knowing about Jesus to actually knowing him, to, to going beyond just seeing uh, facts about him, even written in scripture, but to also know him and see him and experience him in everyday life. So I just want to suggest from this, from this uh, passage, and again, I'm just trying to tweak your interest in these resurrection appearances, I, I encourage you to go much deeper and keep digging. But here's three things that I would take away uh, that, that are a constant reminder for me. One is that, uh, that God wants to constantly be um, helping us grow as apprentices, as followers, and be formed more and more into his image. And part of the way that happens is listening to Jesus and letting him opened the scriptures. Just as he opened the scriptures to them, 
It's not enough to go academically and study the scripture and tear it apart and look at it and say, oh, now I really understand it. You also have to have a dialogue with Jesus, the one who it's about. Beyond the sacred page, I seek you, Lord. So that's always a starting point as we think about understanding Jesus in his word. And that's one of the ways that we get to know him is by letting the scriptures become more and more a part of our lives. And secondly, I would say, one of the things that this passage I love so much is that Jesus always takes the initiative. Jesus um, entered into their conversation as they're walking on the road. He entered into their sadness and despair and, and gave them some answers on where to go to, to help understand and properly interpret what their life was all about. So Jesus wants to meet you and me not apart from the hard things of life, but right in the midst of the mess, right in the midst of the disappointments and the resentments, and he doesn't want to leave us there. And thirdly, let's let God meet us in worship. One of the, one of the joys of being together, even if it had to be uh, through Zoom or telecast there's something very important about being together because part of the way we see Christ the way we see life is through community in one with one another and part of community is coming together in the communion meal and so we end our service with this act this sacrament of coming together to take the bread and the cup and the one who says I am with you and I will meet you there so let's pray together as we, uh, as we look to the Lord's table. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who has come uh, in our midst, the one who took on our humanity that we might take on your likeness. Father, thank you so much for the ways in which you meet us where we are in the ordinary things of life. We can see you everywhere if we have our eyes open and our hearts tuned. Lord, heal us and clear us from resentments that would bog us down, that would take us away from what you've made us to be. And Lord, even as you gather us together, may you then now scatter us uh, to do the work that you've called us to do in bearing witness to the one who makes sense of life, who makes life worth living and gives us a vision for that life. We thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you are watching on uh, video today, we invite you to join us for a brief time of communion. Uh, and the Zoom link will be uh, right there on your screen and you'll have an opportunity to, uh, to join uh, someone who's leading that uh, brief service and also there will be folks who will be able to pray with you.